When you grow up in a large family like I did, it is almost impossible to ever get time alone with your parents. I'm the oldest of five, as many of you know, and I grew up on a cattle ranch in Montana, and both of my parents were working so hard simply to keep that little cattle ranch afloat. My mother was working jobs, first at the county hospital and then at the Safeway store where she was the produce manager. So it was almost impossible to ever get time alone with even one of your parents, let alone the two of them together. That was nigh unto impossible. And as the oldest of five kids, there was always some bratty brother or sister demanding more attention than I would get. And in my family, it wasn't really expected that you would request time alone with your father or your mother. So much of my childhood experience was one of which, and this continues today, of where I have to slip things in where I can. You have to watch for opportunities. You have to wait sometimes months or even years to talk about something important with both parents. I want to tell you about a night in December 1988, a night in which I did, in fact, get both of my parents alone together, and I could have a conversation with them. I was in college at that point. I had just turned 21 that September, and I had just come back from a semester abroad. I had gone, I'd spent my junior year of university abroad, and I'm the first and only person in my family to ever go to college. And so it was unusual enough to go to college, and doubly unusual to then go abroad for your junior year. And being the adventurous person I am, I chose two very different places to be abroad that year. In the fall semester, I was in Seoul, South Korea, and then I knew that I was going to the University of Amsterdam in Holland in the spring semester. After two years at Montana State University and coming a little more into myself, it was that fall in Korea when I had enough distance from my family, from my studies, where things were unusual enough that I could come to terms with my own sexual orientation something that I had known since I was probably four or five, but had never really put it all together. So I came back from that semester of university, and of course, when you're raised in the church, when you're a good kid like I am, the first thing that you do with news like this is that you tell your parents. <laughs> but if you can never get your parents together alone, how are you supposed to tell them? something this important. Well, December was wearing on and the time was growing closer and closer for me to fly to Holland and to have my experience there. And I was starting to wonder how or if I would be able to have this conversation with them. Well, one day we decided that we needed to go to Missoula for, for something. Now, Missoula was about an hour and a half or so from the ranch. And so we went there often. It was a place where we did shopping and a variety of things. And so it was not unusual to go to Missoula and back in one day. What we did that day was somehow it was just my mother and my father and I who went on that trip. I don't know how on earth it happened. I don't know where the other children were. But I had my father and my mother alone in the car for the whole day on a trip to Missoula. 
Well, the day started out cold but sunny, and so we drove down there. And I don't know what we did. We probably did some shopping, got some things that were needed on the farm. And then as we were starting to come back, it started to snow in earnest. And as we were starting to come back, it was snowing harder and harder and harder. And I don't know what possessed me, but I said that I would like to actually drive back from Missoula to the ranch. And my parents didn't think this was too unusual. It was kind of nice for them to have one of their kids drive the car. So I'm driving a big, old, blue, beat-up Chevy Suburban. And we're driving back from Missoula. And it is snowing, and it is snowing harder and harder. And the wind is blowing. And visibility is getting lower and lower. And traffic is going slower and slower. And I decide I'm going to come out to my parents. <laughs> Timing is everything. <laughs> They're stuck. I'm stuck. I got something important to do while I do this. I'm driving. It's my job to keep this old bucket of bolts on the road. It's my job to not run into the traffic ahead of us. It's my job to not keep us careening off into the ditch. My mother is sitting next to me, and my father is just behind me in the middle seat. I'm gripping that steering wheel for all it's worth. And I say, Mom and Dad, there's something that I need to tell you. This, I don't know why it was, but it was a bolt out of the blue for them. I said, I think I might be gay. And then I didn't say anything else. Silence. Snow. <laughs> Miles. Nothing. Then my father, who was not the one that I would have thought would be the person who would speak up first, quietly said from the middle seat, how long have you known? At this point, I'm so glad I'm driving. Because <laughs> I need something to do right now, because it has just gotten really real. I said, as long as I can remember. At which point, my mother burst into tears. She's crying next to me. My father's silent in the back seat. I don't think we said five more words the rest of the trip. The snow did not let up. The road did not get better. But I could feel in me a tension lift, a freedom come over me, that I, for the first time, had been able to really let my parents see a bit of me that they never had seen. We drove on through the night. I understand it was a tough night for them. I understand my mother cried a lot, and my father did his best to console her. I slept well that night. I slept so very well. I had gotten my parents together alone, amid dangerous circumstances to talk about something vitally important. And I was free to go ahead and live my life.
So what's a newly out young gay man supposed to do after he graduates from the university in Montana? Get the heck out of Montana. <laughs> not enough going on there, not enough to do, whole lot more of the world to be seen. I moved without an apartment, without a job without any friends to Portland, Oregon. Simply packed up, now a beat up old blue Toyota Tercel, 
with everything that could be shoved in it and room enough for me to drive. And I moved to Portland, Oregon. I found a bad apartment and a bad job, but I found good friends. I found life there. I found community there. I found folks that were active there. And I found a church there. I found Unitarian Universalism there. I found First Unitarian Church of Portland, Oregon, where it seemed like the most ordinary thing in the world was to be gay and to be on whatever committee you wanted to be on. <laughs> Thus started four incredible years for me. This was the early 90s. This was the, at the height of some of the anti-gay ballot measures that were going on in Oregon. It was also the very, very crest, the darkest, darkest days of the AIDS crisis. These were the days when people died within months. These were the days when robust young men, beautiful young men, turned into old men in a matter of months or a matter of years, cut down in their prime. One of my new friends, was also from Montana, from Helena, just about 40 miles away from where I grew up. His name was Jeffrey Williamson. And Jeffrey and I were unlikely friends because he was as different as I was, different from me the, as I could imagine. I think the only thing that held us together was that we had roots back in Montana, that we had come from a similar place and we came from similar people. And I think that was the start of our friendship, and I think that that was also its glue. Jeffrey was beautiful. He was the most beautiful man you can imagine. Tall and lanky, pale, pale skin. He had a little bit of Native American blood in him, so he had those high cheekbones and jet black hair that was quite unruly. He was quite the dresser and quite Quite, went through quite a few boyfriends while I knew him. Jeffrey worked in a, a, a series of retail jobs, um, but Jeffrey's true passion was going out to the clubs. It was being the life of the party. And so in Jeffrey's shadow, I could just sort of be my sort of quieter self and I could just follow along in his wake because he was going to just open doors and he was going to find all of the interesting people and folks were going to glom around Jeffrey in the way they were never going to glom around me. So Jeffrey and I were friends. We did lots of things together. He hauled me out to lots of clubs. We did all kinds of adventures together. And Jeffrey Jeffrey was sort of the wild part of me that I would never allow myself or just was not part of me. Jeffrey did not choose particularly well. He went through a long series of boyfriends. I remember distinctly the afternoon that I got a phone call that he needed to move out of his apartment within the next hour. I was to come over with that same beat-up Toyota Tercel and I brought a box of black garbage bags. And I remember going into his apartment, and he was crying, and his face was all puffy because he'd been beat up again by his boyfriend, and he was leaving. I was crying, too. All we could do, pull one garbage bag after another out of the damn box and shove stuff in it. Stick stuff 
in black garbage bags as fast as you could, shove it in the car and get the hell out of there. Jeffrey, Jeffrey's beautiful self and beautiful life was not to be a long one in this world. He's been dead now almost as long as he was alive. He was one of those men that got HIV and got AIDS. He was one of those beautiful, beautiful, talented, lovely creatures who did not survive that epidemic. In some ways, just the thought of him, his beautiful smile, his love of life, his charismatic, magnetic personality. What a gift and what a shame. I actually use his real name when I tell this story. I might otherwise have changed his name, but it's too important. It's too important to remember those that we have lost. It's too important to name their names. It's too important to mourn what they might have given this world.
So what's a newly minted gay minister supposed to do when he finishes seminary? <laughs> Go find a church, of course. God bless the folks in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. That church, that little tiny bastion of liberalism in that sea of conservatism, that church that debated long and hard not whether or not they could accept a minister who was gay, but whether they could accept a minister who believed in God. <laughs> After candidating week in that little church where I had done just my best to show who I was and to hopefully not scare them off or scare me off, they debated for almost two hours whether they were ready to take a chance on this person touting something called spirituality. They ultimately did decide to call me. The vote was, was respectable. <laughs> and we started up together. We started up together, and I think I was as scared of them as they were of me. We had no idea what to do with each other. So week after week in church and other places, we just kind of did the best we could. I made tons of mistakes. They were very gracious in forgiving me. I kind of learned on the job how to do all the things that never could have been taught in seminary. I wouldn't have even had the eyes or the ears for those things. But we were frightened of one another for years and years, frightened of one another. I was frightened that I would let too of much of myself out, that I would be too gay, that I would make it a gay church. That were some, those were some of their fears as well, unspoken. The funny thing is that that never happened. It actually became a younger church. It became a vibrant church. It became a church that had a little more courage to step out of their well-hidden, suburban, wooded campus and to actually kind of notice that there was a city near them and that there were some other liberal religious folks, maybe at the synagogue or maybe at the Presbyterian church. Little by little, we started to come out to one another, if you will. They got comfortable with me, and I got comfortable with them. And one of the things that I was most proud of my church for doing was that there were some folks in that church that started a program in which they helped shield gay and lesbian and bisexual and transgendered people from hateful, angry protesters who would show up year after year after year at the Pride Festival. This is central Pennsylvania. This is deeply conservative territory, politically and religiously. There'd been a festival in Harrisburg for many years. It first was started kind of hidden on somebody's farm out of town, and it slowly over the years had moved itself into one of the public parks in Harrisburg. And it was a fun festival. Folks came from literally three, four-hour drive to come to this one festival, just one day a year, one solitary day a year, to be who you were 
to be among your people, to be seen. And the protesters came too. Hateful, hateful protesters. Large signs, megaphones, spouting Bible verses. And they would stand at the edge of the Pride Festival and try and shame us all. My church decided that was not right. It was not going to put up with that. So what they did, it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. There were some folks in the church that had been trained in nonviolence, and so they knew that there was no talking to these folks. There was no shouting at these folks. There was no even arguing with these folks. There was no rational way to deal with these protesters. But what we had was we had the gay community and the police on our side. And all we needed to do was to create a visible barrier between the protesters and the festival. So what they did is they went out and they got about 50 enormous golf umbrellas, rainbow-striped golf umbrellas. <laughs> and members of my church volunteered, straight members of my church volunteered to simply stand with one of these umbrellas open full over their back between the protesters and the festival. Silent witnesses is what they called themselves. They created a rainbow umbrella fence between the protesters and the festival. And you know what? It worked. It worked better than any yelling could have done. It worked better than any arguing could have ever done. And year after year, their persistent showing up at those festivals actually made the protesters go away. It simply was not worth it to show up and spew hatred to people who were being kind and loving and simply were not going to listen to it. Oh, the wrath, oh, the ire that my people took standing there non-violently not speaking, holding an umbrella. Our church made it so much better for so many other people that finally one year, the folks who organized it were brave enough to actually have a parade. We had gone from somebody's barn, somebody's farm into town, and we'd gone now from the public park. We were actually going to walk down the street. We were going to go somewhere. And again, all of the fears arose. Oh my goodness, what if the protesters learn we're doing a parade? What if they come? What if people throw things at us? What if people heckle us? But the Unitarian Church of Harrisburg had done its work. And what we could do, we had all of the silent witnesses there. They were ready. They had their umbrellas ready. We were going to defend this parade. We were going to march in the parade. I think we had over 100 people in it. We even had um, the choir formed a band called the Flaming Chalices. <laughs> and they had a whole songbook, and they were ready to, they were going to sing those protesters away from that parade. And we were ready to just march down that street. And they did. They were playing all manner of funky little plastic instruments and kazoos and singing their hearts out. There was not a single protester who showed up at that parade. In fact, 
We were right behind the governor who walked down the street in front of our church, hang, shaking hands with everybody he could. A church can make a difference in the lives of its members and in the lives of a community. Shameless.
Look how the world has changed and look how the world is changing still. We have come so far and there is a ways to go, my friends. I hope you will join me. I hope you will join us. We have work to do, but we have much to celebrate.